New York Insight it really is, especially with so many beginners here tonight, um, we're always very uh, excited to have new people come and, and uh, experience these teachings, um, which for many of us, including myself, have been um, life transforming. So part of uh, what we do here <clears throat> is feel some gratitude and appreciate the fact that we're sitting in a, um, in a stream of generosity because as, a, as an organization, even though we've, I have some, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders and I have colleagues, one of whom passed away and other colleagues who are still on this earth who co-founded it with me, we don't feel a sense of ownership uh, in the sense of it's our thing and everybody else comes, but that this organization is one that belongs. It's a it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization and truly not for profit. <laughs> truly not for profit. And um, and really is belongs to the community, belongs to you. So the moment you walk through these doors, you are part of the community. Um, there's no such thing as, you know, us and you who are kind of visiting, but you are now part of our community. And uh, we sit in this stream of generosity that really began 2,600 years ago with the Buddha when he, did, when he um, decided to have a community of monks and nuns and uh, to just teach what he had learned in his own awakening and so we designed these evenings so that you can come regardless of economic circumstances and um, be part of the community and partake in these beautiful teachings. So if you are moved by them and you feel benefit in them and you would like to enter the stream of generosity and continue to support uh, to support the organization. We have a basket in the back that you can make uh, donations to, and we welcome donations of all sizes. So um, if whatever is donated tonight will be shared between New York Insight and myself. Uh, as teachers, when we come, we're not paid. Um, we rely on the generosity of the students, and we are very grateful for all of the donations that you give. You can also support New York Insight by um, volunteering because most of our operations are run by volunteers. We have two employees and everybody else who works here, the teachers, the event managers, and um, we have tonight Casey and Incasa. Where are you? Thank you so much for your service. Um, and. Uh, so if you have talents that you think might be of service and you feel as if you would like to offer them, we would gladly and gratefully appreciate uh, the offer of your time, talent, and uh, good spirits. So thank you very much. <sighs> So as I started to say, <clears throat> I was speaking to a friend uh, today, a colleague, who was telling me about her grandmother, who she says was completely psychic and a very spiritual being. And that her grandmother, when she was a child, her grandmother told her, that there would be um, eventually in the world two groups. One group, she said, would belong to those who um, believe in oneness. That was her language. And the other group would be a group that believed in separation, separateness. 
And she said at the time when she was a child and her grandmother said this, she had no idea what on earth she was talking about. Right. But we were, the two of us old crones were sort of sitting around talking about you know, how, it, how it is now in the world and really being somewhat puzzled by this division, puzzled by the developments that we've all noticed over these years. I'm a child of the 60s when revolution was definitely in the air, where we uh, felt it, we were prompted, we were moved by the Vietnam War to speak out because we saw that something was terribly wrong. And um, so I was shaped by those times. And I think that our, my generation was shaped by those times really from a sense of interconnectedness and a sense of um, togetherness and a sense of uh, being a citizen of the world, being a citizen of the world in which every other citizen and every other being had the same entitlement to live in peace and safety and happiness. It's not developed that way. I, as I was thinking about what to speak about tonight, I went online and just went to Huffington Post to see what's up in the world today. And everywhere I looked, there was a problem in terms of us being together as human beings. Ukraine, Syria, Egypt, Yemen, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Nigeria, Nepal, Burma, New Jersey, right? Something is happening everywhere in which the forces of the mind are strong in trying to convince us that we don't need each other, that we don't depend on each other. And one of the imaginations that I had was what it would be like <clears throat> if I were alone on this planet. I was wondering what would get me up in the morning? What would move me to do anything? Who would make my clothes? How would I be fed? Who would I talk to? Who would I share my longings with? Who would I love? <laughs> and it was pretty dismal and it was pretty grim. So if we even imagine that, we begin to wonder what it is that pulls us apart in this way. What it is that makes us really believe that if somebody has enough, that it, somebody else has enough, that it makes us have less. Where instead of realizing that we must work together, that we must plan together, that we must take care of whoever is weak for the moment or ill or needs comfort or some a leg up or help, that instead of reaching out and acknowledging our connection, that instead we demonize or 
um, hate. There's a lot of hatred, a lot of hate speech in the world. It's kind of shocking how our politicians these days feel it's perfectly okay to speak in terms of hatred, to, to, to uh, take resources away from groups that are least able to defend themselves and support themselves and to give it to groups that certainly are not without. So wherever we look, we have disturbing information about the state of the world. And we see fighting and oppression and so much suffering and our heart can squeeze but when it squeezes it releases and expands into a feeling of caring deeply for those nearby and those across the oceans from us and of course we ask what can we do to help what is possible And of course, for me, before I even um, take action, I, it, I'm terribly sad. But I also get mad. I get really somewhat angered at the blindness and the ignorance and the crazy way we as humans react to the challenges of life. So it's easy to become overexcited or frightened or numb or perfectly angry at the state of the world. We need to care about our, our mountains, our oceans, our forests, and to those people who are in really terrible conflicts and the Middle East and Africa and uh, you know, even just hearing about the drug wars in Mexico and how many people get killed or what women face in Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or places where women are treated as if they are second-class citizens. And then the question arises, how can we stay vulnerable? How can we open to the world and not be overwhelmed? Because these are serious issues. It, it makes us wonder, it certainly makes me wonder, what's going to happen to the world? What's going to happen to our human race? And so the question is, how can we be intimate with this? How can we really let all of this in? How can we take it in and not let it overrun us or exhaust us or create a sense of hopelessness or despair and finally withdrawal? There's this image of uh, Prajnaparamita who's the mother of all Buddhas and what she has wrapped around her arm is a lotus. And so this image of this very Buddhist image of the lotus is the image of the flower that blooms in the midst of the mud and also in the midst of a fire raging around it. And the closer the fire gets, the more fragrant the flower becomes and the more beautiful and vibrant glows the color of the blossom. And that this fire represents the suffering that's everywhere. And the flower represents our caring energy that through our efforts gives solace and, and, and support to the suffering of the world. So our question is, how can our lotus bloom in the midst of the world's adversity? How do we relate 
to the magnitude of suffering that we see in our own community and other parts of the world? Do we become enraged? Do we become overwhelmed? Do we become numb? Or do we become even more awake, blooming like the lotus? So as a child of the 60s, we protested in response to injustice and hardship. But what I noticed even back then is that we began to learn the ways of hatred. We marched, we learned to work with others, we learned to um, find our voices. But this hatred was always at the root of it. We would view the other, you know, in, in the 60s they used to call policemen pigs, right? And there, it, there was a way of treating anyone who disagreed with you as other the police officer, the soldier, the politician. And yet what we realize is that they are all sisters and brothers shaped by their experiences and values. But we didn't see them as that. We saw them as the enemy. Us versus them. And this world of separation, as my friend's grandmother talked about, and we turn the other into this um, object of resentment and of um, hatred and ignorance so that there's no discussion, there's no listening, there's no problem solving, and what, we, what do we create? We create rage and we create violence. What is the solution we turn around and we acknowledge our interconnection. And in doing that, when we understand that our interconnection is not just with you and you, but not her or him, but that our interconnection is with all beings, only then can we turn away from our anger, our hatred, and our violence. the beings that we admire who have been able to overturn centuries of oppression and inequality, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Mandela, all of these beings and many more. Showed us the power of wisdom and of uh, nonviolence, and which doesn't mean that we capitulate, but that we can resist nonviolently. And the power of it is amazing. Because it affirms that every single one of us is completely, completely, and intimately interdependent on every single other being and everything in this universe and that we must find a way to make it work. But that finding a way to make it work depends on the transformation of every single heart one by one by one. And it takes a tremendous amount of strength to turn away from anger, to turn away from hatred, and to turn towards that interdependence. To turn towards the wisdom of the transformation of the heart. Martin Luther King 
speaking of his view of life that doesn't allow for hating or harboring anger, even in the name of justice or ecology. Basically said that if we approach all of life with reverence, we, we search for measures to make change and care for the whole world. He said, so at the center of our movement stands the philosophy of love philosophy of love, the attitude that the only way to ultimately change humanity and make for the society that we all long for is to keep love at the center of our lives. And Albert Schweitzer, who was a beautiful humanitarian, said the fundamental fact of human awareness is this, I am life that wants to live in the midst of other life that wants to live. A thinking person feels compelled to approach all life with the same reverence he has for his own. So Dr. King called for love and Schweitzer called for reverence. And so our task is to see how we can approach life with love and reverence in the midst of the suffering that is clearly here. How do we provide care now for this world? A world that is in need of leadership and stewardship that's intelligent, that's compassionate, that's wise. And so we want to take responsibility and we want to take action. But we can't wait for ourselves to be enlightened. <laughs> Good luck with that. You know, you know the thing, right? I'll get myself together once and then once I do, I'll, you know, I'll start. I'll save the world. Our life is inside and outside. And in the text in which the Buddha step by step explains the practice of mindfulness, instructs us to be mindful internally and to be mindful externally and then to be mindful internally and externally. In other words, to see ourselves internally, to understand what is happening, to really be intelligent and clear about what is true internally by observation, by experience. And then to look externally and to look in the same way externally as we do internally to see what is happening in the world, to be totally mindful of the world. And then he says internally and externally instructing us that there is a relationship between the two. So it's how we meet the suffering that we encounter without the fear of being overwhelmed, without um, worrying that if we take in so much suffering and so much pain that we will become paralyzed or numb or discouraged or hopeless. We can do that by how we meet the suffering that we encounter. Most of the spiritual traditions, not just Dharma, not just Buddhism, tell us to not to move away from suffering, but to move toward it. How can we do that? There is so much of it in the world. We walk by a street person, a beggar, 
or somebody who's zoned out on drugs. <clears throat> and we feel pity, we feel sorry. But when we feel pity, we separate ourselves from the suffering. It's as if, oh, that person over there is a poor, helpless person. But when we do that, it's condescending. And it doesn't really um, do anything for that person. Because we're elevating ourselves and looking down on the pitiable person. On the other hand, we can feel compassion. We can feel sympathy. And this gets closer to the problem that a lot of very well-intentioned people like us can have. And that's, it's like joining the other person. It's like really understanding what it's like to be human. Not from up here and the person's down here, but really on a totally equal and level playing field. So we join the suffering, compassion. We share in the pain. The pain becomes ours. But when we join in that feeling of inadequacy or sadness or despair, if we do that and we, be, we allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by it, we can't help. If we're down there in the midst of it, it's not possible for us to help. We become uh, fellow drowners in the difficulty. And if we do that, then we become overwhelmed and we feel as if there's nothing that can be done. But when we're in sympathy, when we're in compassion, we become intimate. We become intimate with an open heart and mind because we recognize the fellowship that we have with all other creatures, including our fellow humans. And this intimacy comes about when we allow ourselves to be completely open and alive to what's happening without pity and without our own agenda. This is important. When that happens, we are prepared to engage. We're prepared to act. And in this intimacy, we can get close to the problem. Because we're not overwhelmed. We're not drowning. And we're not losing ourselves in the problem. We don't lose our own unique and individual self and all of the talents and the qualities that we have to bring to the issues. We don't lose our ability to discern. We don't lose our ability to act. We can sense by being close to the feelings of the other person. We can sense the destruction that's happening in our society. And it is. There's no question in my mind. But we're distinct, and we're active, and we're caring, and we find a way to serve those who need help. We are connected. We're connected through the life that we have in common, and at the same time, we're individual enough to understand others. I don't know if you know of Indra's net, which is an um, ancient Indo-Chinese view of the universe, that it stretches out infinitely in this net. And at the net, and at the node, every node of this net, there is a diamond-like jewel. And every jewel in the net 
reflects all of the other jewels in the net. And all of the other jewels reflect back onto that. So no one jewel exists without the others. Each is always reflecting all the other parts of the net. So can you imagine yourself as a jewel in this net? We are not confined by the borders of our skin. We are not defined by the borders of our skin. We are not confined by the boundaries. We are constantly, our being is constantly shifting and changing in an inexorable and infinite process of movement and flow. And this movement and flow is responding to every experience, every sense experience, every thought, every sense door that is impinged. We're a function of this moment, this exact moment, and all of the moments that came before. Back to our ancient ancestors whose blood runs through our veins. And even back to the formation of the earth itself. As you're listening right now, you're not just what you might be thinking. You're not just the product of what you're thinking or feeling or experiencing right now. But you're also the interplay and the relationship of everything that's happening in this room, in this building, in this city, out beyond the boundaries of our state and our country, and even of our earth. We are all, like Indra's net, constantly in a beautiful dance of interplay and interaction. So it helps to be awake to the, suf- to the suffering. But being awake to the suffering doesn't mean we're drowned by it or that it persuades us to shift into a place of hatred or aggression or violence. The simple practice of meditation that we've done together today helps us to train our minds to be present and to be alive. And this training of presence and aliveness is not just presence and aliveness to what is pleasant. It's presence and aliveness to all of life, to everything that happens. so we can be intimate with ourselves and with all of those whom we love. And who do we love? We love everyone, even those that would try to break us or that are speaking ill of us. What it helps us to do, this intimacy, is to change the rhythm of our heart and mind. And we begin to be awake and aware to the voices inside of us. Then when we turn to those around us, there is the ability to hear them too. We are what will make a difference. Each of us will make a difference as the world is transformed one heart at a time. And as we are making a difference in the process, we too are changed. <clears throat> 
as we recognize our intimacy with the whole world and as we are willing to have our hearts forged in the fire of compassion which is fierce because we cannot be compassionate without joining in the suffering and yet having the wisdom and the talent that is cultivated to not drown in it. We recognize our intimacy with the whole world when we're able to move into the fire. We are the lotus that is forged by the fire. Every flame makes our color brighter. We shine through this willingness to be there, to be compassionate, to turn to love. This is one of my favorite sayings from Dr. King. I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow, we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience, and we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. That's a tremendously, that takes a tremendous amount of strength. And it is possible, it is possible to build that strength, to build a mind, body, and heart structure that is strong, that is resilient. And compassion is the key. but it must be partnered with wisdom. Thank you. I'd like you to just take five minutes with each other so if you would take a partner, just the, turn to, the, to a person next to you. I'm going to ask you to, um, is, does everybody have a partner? Anybody need one? I'm going to ask you to just, um, I'm, I'll give you each three minutes. So I'll ring the bell and the first person, the person with the less hair will speak. <laughs> we'll will Wait, 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 wait. The person with the less hair is going to ask a question, and they're just going to keep asking the question, and here's how it will go. You're going to ask the question, how do you react to, the bad, new- to bad news in the world? And the person will give an answer, and you'll say, thank you. And you'll ask the question again, how do you react to bad news in the world? The person will answer, and you'll say, thank you. And you're going to do that for just three minutes. And then I'm going to ring the bell. And um, we're going to stop for a moment. And then I'm going to give the other person three minutes. The other person is going to become the questioner who was the answerer before. And um, 
if you would, if you're the questioner, not give any verbal, any facial cues about how you feel about the answer, because we're going to give space to this person to really just feel what's coming up for them, right? So it will be, how do you react to bad news in the world? I feel angry. Thank you. How do you react to bad news in the world? Oh, it makes me really sad. Thank you. I want to go out. Thank you. Whatever it is, you're not making any judgment about what the person is responding to. Do you understand? Okay, and then I'll ring the bell, and then the person with the longer hair will become the questioner. Okay, so... Okay, so if you would just be silent for a moment, just feel the reverberations of whatever you heard or said, and then the longer-haired person will now speak. We'll now ask the question. So thank your partner, and if you'd come back into the circle. So we have a little time for you to share with the larger circle what you learned or what struck you or any questions you may have, too. I was surprised. Is this on? I was surprised to find out that I really have kind of cultivated a life where I don't really allow bad news to enter into my life. Mm. That's big. (laughs) thank you Uh, we're similar in that because I was just sharing that I don't look at news on television or listen to it on radio anymore I will read the newspaper but that's it but also I was surprised hearing myself it went all the way from the beginning of withdrawal to actually toward the end looking at, well, how I can actively get involved Mm. in doing something. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. There's a gentleman. There's a person here. Yes, right right there. Behind behind Bill. And and then you can come here. And then you can come here. Um, I wanted to investigate what it meant to be bad. To be um, bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To be bad news, you mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. because I think we all have different understandings of what badness is. <laughs> Beautiful. And it's not necessarily fair t- for me to impart what I see as bad on somebody else. Um, so just, you know, before even considering what I do with it, but first investigating why I'm understanding this is something bad. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Hi, um, my name's Anise. Hi, I Anise. noticed after the question um, that I had more of a, a physical reaction of of, uh, of weariness to the, the assignment itself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that in the beginning of the assignments mm-hmm. until after. Because I noticed that, well, now, um, how it, it struck me with this sense of, um, almost similar, of prote- a sense of trying to protect myself, even from the question of the words bad news. Um, and then, but at the same time, during the assignment, I realized or experienced uh, just being in it, and that allowed almost a dissipating of that, um, of that fear almost. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like it's, um, like it, it turns out to the other side, which you can be with it. And yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
is on. Um, I discovered What's that your name? Nyasha. Nyasha. Um, that my decision to reach out depended on how badly I felt. And the worse I felt, the less I wanted to reach out when really my instinct was always to reach out first. Um, and that's not, not a bad or a good thing, but I think that I wanted to be more, um, the worse I feel about it, the quicker I reach out. So that's just um, something that I observed and mm -hmm. something I observed is changing. Mm. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Wilfredo. Alfredo, did you say? Wilfredo. 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 Mm -hmm. Oh, hey. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I have a question about something you said earlier. Could well, you stand up, Wilfredo, because I can't see you. Thank you. I'm sorry to um, make you do that. It's regarding compassion and, yeah. um, and acting on it. Uh, and? and? Acting on it. Uh-huh. Um, I experienced something yesterday. Um, I was on my way home, and um, there was a homeless person lying on the street right in front of a, a church. Mm. Um, he seemed happy enough. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't tell what was going on, except that the only thing I could, that was going through my mind was he needs to eat. Mm. It was cold, and he needed to eat. So I struggled with actually getting him food because mm. I wasn't sure whether I was acting out of compassion or whether I was just, I don't know, acting out of selfishness. I wanted to be seen as good. Mm -hmm. So I stopped myself. And by I whom? By anyone who was passing by. Uh -huh. So I stopped myself and um, went to the talk. And two hours later, I passed by. He was still there. And um, I did. I turned around and, and I bought him a sandwich. And I walked up to him and I gave it to him. And the second I heard his voice, I saw the human there. I saw the person. And there was no, like, you know, I'm so sorry for you, I'm so compassionate. And I just walked away. And I wasn't sure whether that was it. So, I'm, Whether I'm, what was what? Whether I was supposed to be feeling no feelings at all, mm -hmm. and just, you know, I did the deed and that's it. Mm -hmm. Or whether or not I was actually supposed or should feel some warmth from mm -hmm. the action. What did you actually feel? I felt warmth. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and love towards this person, even mm. in a fleeting second. Mm -hmm. The second he said thank you to me, he, was, he looked like a nutcase, and I, th I think that's why no one wanted, mm -hmm. excuse me, wanted to approach him. Mm -hmm. But the second he said hello, I could tell this person is not really sick. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a person. And mm -hmm. he looked at me in such a way, again, another second, I saw the person for a second. And I walked away thinking, a little confused, was that right, was it wrong, I just didn't know. And when you're talking about compassion, and um, my understanding was that you should do it from yourself, from the self, and not, I'm just putting him, I'm paraphrasing. And not from? And not from, not for show mm -hmm. in any way. There's, I think there's a thin line between those, mm -hmm. and I can't really figure out where to walk that line, where mm. you're just doing it. Yeah. What a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, so, could you keep the mic because I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to just say, I, I, want, I want you to be able to respond to me. Um, so, what makes you think that there's some way that you're supposed to be? I think... it's uh, a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure, it's just um, the voices mm -hmm. that are there, mm -hmm. you know, that we're conditioned to listen to, whether, mm -hmm. don't be a hypocrite, don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Those are things that I struggle with now. Yeah. So, you know, so this, this, this instruction of the Buddhas about observing internally and externally and internally and externally, I, for me, is like a great, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing instruction. So you know for yourself, the, in another part of the scriptures, he talks, he tells these people who are asking him how to figure out which teachings they should follow. He tells them, 
to not believe anything that anybody says, even if it's the greatest teacher in the world, or even if he says it, but that what you do is you take those teachings and you put them into practice. And when you see for yourself whether, those, whether putting them into practice is a wholesome experience and produces wholesome results, then you know you should follow it. That if, they are, if the results are unwholesome or if it's, it feels like an unwholesome experience, then you shouldn't follow those teachings, Right? So what that does is it eliminates all shoulds. No shoulda, anything. So you were moved from what you're saying. I'm, this is what I'm hearing, and you can correct me if, I'm, if no, I've mistaken what you said. You were moved by a deeply human feeling of seeing someone who was in need and you decided to do something, to take action, because you could fulfill that need and you felt that he was incapable of fulfilling that need for himself, at least in that moment. Mm -hmm. So is it possible to simply do that and to take take your feelings at face value Mm -hmm. and your own motivation without putting it into question? or even needing to describe it as compassion or anything else. The only reason that it's helpful to label it as compassion is because you want to mark that in your own heart as to how it feels. And when you know how it feels, you will know what is compassion and what is not. Because that feeling of compassion is a complete intimate joining with another being. And you know that for yourself. Nobody looking from the outside can ever tell what you're actually feeling. So to not have self-doubt or to question your own beautiful obviously high motivation and it's also fine to have kind of checked in and said you know is there any part of me that has a motivation that's not noble not because you want to judge yourself but because you want to check that out too that's what I was feeling after I gave it to you I was just thinking well what was all that about yeah Um, yeah. Was it for me or was it for him? I suggest, I concluded that it was for him. But your heart moved. My heart and moved so a lot. In the, in, the, in the moment that the heart moved, you knew exactly what was happening. Because there wasn't a question in the mind. It was just the movement of the heart. So in that movement of the heart, there is really no room for doubt. Do you, do you know what I mean? Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. So we've reached the end of the evening. Yeah, one more. One more. Okay. Uh, if anyone needs to leave, please feel free to do so. Peace. I'll stand up. Hi. Hi. Um, I was invited to come here. I'm really glad I did. What's your name? My name's Shane. Shane. Yeah. Um, the way that I deal with uh, bad news is, uh, and, and especially today's society where we get bombarded by bad news, um, it becomes so overwhelming sometimes that I internalize it. Um, and it scares me sometimes that um, I become desensitized to bad news to the point where I feel like... Um, my own um, empathy is being disabled, um, being able to feel what someone else is going through, and that really scares me because um, my, my empathy and compassion for other people is what shows me that I still have the capacity to exist in this world, that I still have these emotional indicators that move me such to 
to action, such as wanting to do for others. So I was just wondering if we could explore that. Wanting to be what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the I last. was wondering if we could explore that. No, you said something before that that I didn't hear. You said wanting to be something. Wanting to do for others. Wanting to, do, to for do, others. do for others. Right. And what is it you want to explore? Uh, just this idea of being uh, desensitized to our own sense of uh, empathy and compassion for others because mm -hmm. we're bombarded on a daily basis mm -hmm. by bad news. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a few minutes. So if, is that okay with you all? Okay. So the practice that we have of meditation is the kind of um, anti, um, anti-desensitizing. <laughs> so I suppose that it's too negative, so it comes out to sensitizing. <laughs> so this, um, this practice... In the beginning, you know, a lot of the time when we start a, pra a meditation practice, we start it, we think, because we're a little frazzled and, you know, the world, we're all really stressed and pressured. We, everybody is busy. Everybody is much too busy. We, you know, technology has been the opposite of what we thought it was going to be, which was to give us more leisure time. But now it's 24-7, right? So we're always feeling overpowered and overwhelmed, not just by bad news, but by everything that's going on. So this ability to stop and actually just be with our breath is a huge luxury. It's huge. And most people, most students that I speak to, you know, what's their biggest problem with meditation? Can you guess? Time. Time. Nobody has the, everybody tells me, oh, I don't have the time to meditate. I don't have the time to meditate. So, you know, as I said, we can't wait to get ourselves together and be enlightened before we take action. But what we can do is we can spend some time every day with ourselves with this mind-body, this mind-body-heart process, this organism. And when we do that, we begin to understand it at a totally different level, at a totally different, in a totally different way. We start to dive down. We're not so superficial in how we understand the human condition. When we start to really look in a moment-to-moment-to-moment -moment -moment way, we see our human condition completely differently. The assumptions that we made on a gross level start to break down when we look in a really precise and moment-to-moment -moment way. But it takes time, because that's not how we're trained to be. It's not how we're trained to understand ourselves. We're trained to understand ourselves in a very external and superficial way. How much money is in the bank? Is our job good? Did we get a good career? Did we get a good education? Is our wife pretty? Is our husband handsome? Um, do we have a big car? Do we have a big house? Do we? So we have all kinds of ways of judging ourselves, not by the kindness or compassion index, but by what we've gotten, what we've managed to eke out of this society or this culture that, you know, promises much and delivers little. Right? So we so a meditation practice is designed, you know, it's twenty six hundred years old, it's amazing. And yet it's designed to get at the heart of this very being, to understand how this heart reacts, to understand how this mind has been habituated through con deep conditioning to see things externally and internally. 
And for me, in my practice, things did not change until I wept for days. And I wept for days when my mind got still and I could begin to see all that I'd been carrying for years and years and years and years of conditioning. Not because it's anybody's fault, but because that kind of conditioning is passed down from mother and father to daughter and son through the years. And we're raised by human beings who are not perfect, just like we are not perfect. And how we have carried those insults and those depressions and those difficulties all of our lives because we weren't taught how to work with them. We weren't taught how to see them. We weren't taught how to find worth in this being. And as we meditate and we begin to really um, discipline ourselves to do so consistently and constantly, the mind begins to drop into a much deeper place. The heart begins to open in a much more expansive way. So we deepen and we open. And as we deepen and open, sensitivity is refined. We become really sensitive to our environment externally and to our environment internally. And the heart cannot help but be compassionate because we understand our own suffering. And when we can understand our own suffering, we can begin to touch the suffering of others because it's not different. It's not separate. We've all had parents. (laughs) And some of us have been parents, right? And made all of the mistakes. Or not really mistakes, but all of the human foibles. So, so, the, so we, can, we enter into our practice as desensitized human beings because we have found much to protect ourselves from. Who can blame us? Right? But as we open, we see there's really nothing to protect ourselves from. That we can be completely open and there's a natural protection. And that natural protection is really the understanding of the fragility of human life. That we are all, we all have one destination and it's not that long away. And, you know, we can say that as, you know, over and over and over again, but we need to really understand it deeply. Right, because anything can happen at any time. So how do we want to spend our time? Do we want to spend our time buried in, um, in armor? Or do we want to spend our time soft and open? Which feels better? Which is, which, where do you want to be? And if you ask yourself the question in that way, it's pretty clear what the answer is. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. So, as you know, when we practice together in this way, we come together, and I'm always so delighted with this people of color group. Oh my God, I love it so much. I just love it so much. I just love it. I can't help myself. I just love it. <laughs> we create a field of goodness and uh, what is called in the scriptures a field of merit. And instead of holding that merit to ourselves and keeping it in a stingy kind of way, we open 
and we cast it all out like a huge net across the universe, enfolding all beings in this beautiful net of merit. We dedicate the merit of this practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception, wishing that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and strong of body and live with ease. And if there are particular beings that you feel would benefit from our loving kindness, you can mention their names now either silently or out loud and bring them into the room. And we embrace all of these beings whose names have been uttered and especially send our loving care, our compassion, and our deep wish for the end of their suffering. That all beings live free from all suffering. May it be so. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.